Wisdom is something we all desire, right? Why? Why do we want wisdom? What do you guys think? Say something. To make good choices, right? Like if I showed you a picture of a guy walking a tiger on a leash, and I said, y'all, is this a wise decision? What would you say? No, right. Why? Why would that not be a wise choice? Because a tiger's an apex predator, right? It's going to maul that dude. Um, side note, if you ever watch the show When Animals Attack, you get to see a lot of that kind of stuff. I like those kind of shows. So I was thinking, like, this week, when have I seen foolishness and wisdom in the same moment? Like, what is a, what is a time I've seen this? And I immediately thought of, well, when people are learning how to drive, right? Never, never more do you see foolishness than with, with a student driver. I remember specifically the story that my dad told me when he was teaching me how to drive. I asked him, hey, dad, why would you stop teaching my sister? He said, well, I'll tell you why, son. This cord, sorry, I'm not used to it. He said, when I was teaching your sister how to drive, I was teaching her on that Ford Focus we had, right? The manual. I said, yeah, I remember that car. He says, yeah, so I'm teaching her how to drive on the highway. We're on I-20. We're going 65 miles an hour, and we exited 1382, which would take take them back to where we lived, where I grew up. And so when you exit 1382, you come down this hill, and then there's this stoplight and this 90-degree turn you have to take. 90 degrees, right? I said, all right, that makes sense. He said, okay, so we exit. She exit, and she's coming down this hill, and I realize, like, man, she's, like, moving. I'm like, Kristen, you got to slow down. She's like, he's like, hit the brake. She's like, I am hitting the brake. No, you're not, because you would be what? Slowing down, right? And uh, she's like, yes, I am. I'm hitting the brakes. Yeah, I'm pushing the pedal. I'm pushing the pedal. Manual, right? Clutch, right? Not clutch, pushing the clutch. She's pushing the clutch and she's arguing with my dad. But my dad sees the situation for what it really is, right? Like We're about to crash. So in that moment of wisdom, he grabs that steering wheel And he cranks that wheel and does a 90-degree turn at about 50 miles an hour. That car skidded and smacked the curb, came back down, and they were safe. Luckily, right? What happened in that moment was one person knew the situation. One person was able to see the entire context and had learned a little bit from life and their experience. And the other person, my sister, who I asked permission to use this story... My sister was convinced that she was right and the car was wrong because she was committed to doing what she thought was correct instead of listening to the previous owner of the car. And the result was foolishness and wisdom in the same moment, right? J.I. Packer has this has a, has a great way of explaining what wisdom is, and he says it this way. He says, to live wisely... You must be clear-eyed about people and life, seeing life as it is, and then responding with a mind that's dependent on the wisdom of God. And so this will be our subject matter today, wisdom, out of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word.
James 3. Man, it's hard to do this with a wire and all this clicker. All right. James 3, starting verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering and without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace by in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. So the purpose of this text in our sermon today, and my hope for you guys, is that our community will seek to cling to God's design over our own ideas or whatever the world says is right. So here's what we're going to try and do today. I want to try and explain what God is for. I think when we're approaching the subject matter of wisdom, specifically wisdom from above, right? It, it's, it's pertinent that we understand who God is, what he's for, maybe what his design looks like, right? Um, the second thing I want to do is give a picture that James gives us of false wisdom and establish a profile for true wisdom. Ultimately, our leaving goal for today is to answer the question of how do I get wisdom from God? How do I do that? Right? Super practical. But it starts with, who is God for? So write that down, church. Who is God for? In fact, I want everybody to say it. God is for God. Everybody say it. God is for God. And write it down. Write it on your skin. I don't care. Write it somewhere. This is a very difficult realization for American Christians to understand or to come to. I think the reason why is when we're young, there's this little lie that's sown into our minds and our hearts. And the lie is this, that we are the center of the universe. You know, of course, we wouldn't say this right out loud. or We wouldn't write it down in our autobiographies. But functionally, we think and we act this way. That it's all about us. And in that, we let it infiltrate our theology or our understanding of who God is. When we make it about ourselves, what we do is we rob ourselves of the immense amount of joy that God would have for us in coming under his shelter, glorifying him, and enjoying him forever. And so, you might be saying, Pastor Neil, are you saying God isn't for me? Well, no, God is for you. But what I am saying is that he is ultimately for himself. And the scriptures make this point abundantly clear that God is for God. And when we join into it, to that, here's what we experience. Every spiritual blessing, every promise. But most of all, we get God. Which is why we were created, right? To walk in relationship with him, enjoying him forever. And Westminster 
Catechism and Confession says it this way, that the chief end or the purpose of man is to get, glorify God or give Him glory and enjoy Him forever. So when we give glory to God, something happens. We get joy. Joy sounds good, right? And so when we seek to glorify Him in our actions, in our words, in our thought life, in the way we treat one another, man, we're given joy. Because we're being obedient. There's this thing we tell our kids to say when they get in trouble. We make them say, obedience brings joy. Y'all say it with me. Obedience brings joy. Yeah. That's a, that's a crazy lesson, right, to say to a four-year-old. He's like, I, I'm not feeling very joyful right now. I just got in trouble, right? But it's true. When they get in trouble, am I trying to rob them of joy? No. They're being corrected because I want the most possible joy for them, right? And so in that correction or admonishment, they are beginning to be obedient, walking in the design that our household has established, and they don't get into trouble. And so in that, man, there's privileges, there's spiritual blessings, there's promises, right? When God's children walk out giving glory to God, enjoying for Him forever, that is our ultimate purpose. So let's take for an example. Let's do a case study real quick. Because I think a lot of scriptures, man, they really sound like, hey, man, God is ultimately for me. So I want to I wanna kind of flush this out. I think it's important. So this comes from Psalm 106, verses 1 through 12. Here's what it says. Hallelujah, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Who can declare the Lord's mighty acts? Or proclaim all the praise due to him. How happy are those who uphold justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to me with your salvation so that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones. That sounds like God is for us ultimately, right? It says rejoice in the joy of your nation and boast about your heritage. Both we and our ancestors have sinned. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. Our ancestors in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So, so far, man, this looks like God is for me. I am the purpose. And he longs to save me. But I'm, I'm one of those why guys. Like I ask questions, why? A lot. I was in the Marine Corps. They didn't like that very much. But, man, I, I come to this text. I'm like, well, why do you choose to save me? Why would you save me, God? Well, verse 8 gives us our answer. It says, yet he saved them for his namesake. For his namesake. To make his power known. Here's what he did. He rebuked the Red Sea and he dry, and dried it up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the power of the adversary. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Water covered their foes. Not one of them remained. Then what? They believed in his promises and sang his praise. Why does God choose to say, save? For the sake of his name. God is for God. This is why he saves. To make his name known. For us to give him glory and for us to get the most possible joy. 
But the other thing that we have to understand is that God also has a design for how things work. All right, if you haven't seen this movie, you're about to get some spoiler alerts, so sorry. It's also history, so whatever. God has a design. Yeah, I was watching this movie this week, Ford versus Ferrari. Um, I got back from two weeks at Mighty Oaks. I was really tired. I wanted to watch a movie. Think we, what we get? Wingstop? What do we do? Yeah, we got got hot wings, man. We're gonna sit down and watch a movie. So I chose this one. And let me tell you, it's probably the best race car movie I've ever seen. But what it's about is this: Ford was known at the time in the '60s of making boring cars. Even the Mustangs were laughed at at the time. We wouldn't say that now because it's a classic, but. At the time, it was, made, it was made fun of. On the racing circuit, no one took them seriously. Y'all just make boring cars. So Ford wanted to change that. Henry Ford II, no more, right? I want to buy Ferrari. Ferrari was, Enzo Ferrari is about to go bankrupt. And so Ford, their executives, make their way out to Italy to try and purchase Ferrari. And they're meeting with Enzo Ferrari and... Enzo lets it leak that Ford's trying to buy them. So what? Someone will give a better deal, right? Well, that deal came in the form of Fiat. Fiat shows up. They say, hey, we'll buy you, but you keep 100% control of Ferrari and the race team. Ford would said 10%. We still want to say. Better deal. I'm selling to Fiat. It made Enzo mad that they didn't offer him that kind of supreme deal. So he walked up to Ford's executives and insulted them to their face, called Henry Ford like a pig head, amongst other things. And uh, when they took that news back to Mr. Ford, how do you think he received it? Not very well. So he made a mission. We are going to crush Ferrari in the Le Mans. His pride got hurt a little bit. So who, who do we call? Who, who's the one who can help us crush Ferrari? The guy's name was Carol Shelby. This is who he called. See, Shelby was, at the time, the only American to ever win the Le Mans. So he had won the race. He built really fast cars. He was the guy. And so he got appointed. Build me a car. Go beat Ferrari. You have a blank check. Right? And this is where the Ford GT40 comes from. If y'all don't know what that is, that's a cool car. So... Here's the problem. Shelby creates this team, builds this car, but there's one guy in particular that he really wants to hire. His name's Ken Miles. He's this British guy, incredible race car driver and mechanic. He's like, this guy's the guy for us to crush Ferrari. Well, Ford executives say, he's not really Ford image, right? He's kind of a beatnik. And so we're not going to, we're not going to let him drive our car. We want a more, you know, prestigious looking man behind the wheel. And guess what happened? Ford lost, kept losing races. And so finally, Shelby gets called into Ford's office and Ford asks him this. Why shouldn't I fire you? You keep losing. And so essentially, I don't want to say exactly what he says, but essentially, here's what Shelby tells Ford. I designed the car. I built the car. I'm the only American to ever win the Le Mans. I know what it takes. Let me choose my driver 
who can help us win. And through a series of whatever, four gifts shall be his request. And you know what happens? You know what the result is? Ford won the Le Mans in 1966, 1967, 1968, 1969. Not just placing one, but like one, two, and three. Just, I don't think Ferrari's won since, actually, since that happened. Shelby knew what it would take because he created the car and he had won that race, right? Very similarly, God created all things. And all things have a design and have directions for how they will be operated in the greatest possible ways. That will produce that the most possible joy. And so when we're coming to the idea of wisdom, we have to understand that man, God created all of this stuff out of nothing. And he did it very intentionally and very intimately. And there's a way for us to operate within God's design where we are being obedient and getting the most out of life. Humans flourish the most when we submit to God's design in life. Church, if we submit to his design, here's what we do. We tap into his wisdom and we begin seeing the world for what it truly is. And in the process, we get to experience joy from our obedience. So that is what God is about. He's about himself and he's about his design in a good way. So false wisdom begins with rebellion towards those things. This is where we're going to pick up in James. So how do we see or how can we tell what false wisdom is? Well, there's an eye test, right? But there's also more subtleties. And this is what James is going to point out. Verse 13 says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. I love how James goes in on us here in verse 13, right? He doesn't let us off the hook from his main thesis of the letter that faith without works is dead. Here he applies it again with wisdom. So he doesn't just say faith without works is dead and then just move on, right? His thesis touches every tension point in the text. So if you're wise, your actions will show that you're wise. Because why? Wise people actually act what? Wise, right? Makes sense. If it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it is a duck, right? So if you think you're wise, here's what James is saying in verse 13. If you think you're wise, show me. Show me your wisdom. You can't say you're wise and act like a fool. So here's the fool, fool's version of wisdom here in verse 14 through 16. If you have bitter envy Selfish ambition in your heart. Don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. So works are done with envy, self-ambition, and pride. And those characteristics reveal our hearts. They reveal the thing that motivates us to make decisions certain ways, right? They show us who the inner person is. And, like, let's be honest, right? Like, we know what's in us. We know why we make the decisions we make. You know, we may want to fool people, but your motivating factors really reveal what's going on inside. 
Jesus explains to us in Mark seven twenty through twenty three that it's what out it's what comes out of a person that is what defiles him. From within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murder, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. Jesus calls these things foolish and evil, which is the opposite of wisdom, right? James says foolishness or false wisdom is what? Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It is evil and is a reflection of the brokenness of our hearts, the corruption that's inside of us. So here is an opportunity, church, for us to be authentic with ourselves. We can ask these introspective questions because they help us know really what's going on. Like, what are my motivations? Why do I make the decisions I make? What desires do I have? What do I believe I need to satisfy? What are the driving forces behind the decisions I make, right? And what do they say about what you believe? Are you someone who says whatever the world says is right, is acceptable and correct? Or do you long for true wisdom that comes from above? So here's some things that earthly wisdom would say. Earthly wisdom will say about the workplace. By whatever means necessary for me to get ahead and get promoted... No matter who I got to walk over or stab in the back, it's right because I get rewarded. Earthly wisdom would say, if I do these good things for other people, then I will look good on the outside. But what's motivating me to do these things is selfish ambition and the image that I want others to have about me. I want these people to think this way about me. Demonic wisdom would say this. Live your best life now. Or whatever makes you happy, follow your heart. Or speak it into existence. These are things that get propagated in churches. That's demonic. You are not God. And your best life is to come, is what the Bible teaches. And you can't speak nothing into existence. Let's just be real. When we boast in those kind of things, James says that we actually deny the truth. We deny the truth. So then, what is true wisdom? True wisdom, picking up in verse 17, is this. Wisdom from above is first pure then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in by, in peace by those who cultivate peace. So James provides for us this profile of wisdom from above, right? That contrasts what he says is earthly wisdom. So if earthly wisdom is envy and selfish ambition and pride, then this profile stands opposite end of this. And he says, first is pure. So let's look at the profile. Purity comes first. 
or morally pure. How do we get this? It comes by someone who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ and has put aside or taken off or put to death. So what the Bible would teach sensuality, pride, covetousness, which are at the root of earthly wisdom. True wisdom not only says that we must be made pure by Christ, but a wise person who's getting wisdom from above devotes their lives to purity. They don't just say, I've been made clean, now let's do whatever. They're saying, out of this, this renewal, this redemption that I've received, I'm going to walk this out now. I want to have a life of purity. Next is peacefulness. James isn't talking about like peacefulness and conflict, right? Like your marital issues. It's not what he's talking about per se. What he's talking about more is addressing the very fundamental need that we have to be at peace with God. Becoming someone whose heart has been changed by Christ, who has become their peace is what scripture teaches. They will have the peace that only Christ can give because their heart's been taken out of their chest and been placed, a new one's been placed in, right? Ezekiel 36. A uh, heart of stone's been taken out, a heart of flesh has been put in, and he's breathed his spirit into us. Only Christ can do that to the heart. And so only Christ can bring peace because otherwise we're enemies with God because we're in rebellion of him. So we have this need for peace. And not only this, it's like Romans 12, Paul says to live at peace, seek to live at peace with everyone, right? So how do we live at peace with everyone? First, we have to have peace with God, and then we can have peace with one another. St. Francis said it this way in a prayer, which I think gives a good picture of what that peace looks like. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me love where there is doubt, where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. That's living at peace with one another. Next is gentleness. This is someone, let me hold back, gentleness. Men, when I say gentle, be gentle, what do you think of? Being soft, right? That's not what this means. Gentleness, biblical gentleness is not being soft. A lot of you guys are in the army. And so for me to say, well, he, Pastor Neil's telling me to be gentle. Uh, I can't do that in my workplace. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what gentleness is. This is someone who makes allowances for the weaknesses and ignorance of others. And takes the kindest perspective where they can. I think my very first session at Mighty Oaks that I went to, I was in this team, and there's this guy there who was just angry, right? Like jaw tightened, you know? He was on a cane because the VA botched some procedure and about crippled him. Like, God, you made me angry. I hate you. These are the things that was he was saying. And because of his hatred there, he was lashing out against everyone around him and communicating that faith to all of us. And so there's this choice that me and another individual have to make. How will we approach this man? 
And so one day he just walked out of the group, just left it. And so we walked over there. We followed him, sat under a tree with him, and we just listened. He, did, he was ignorant of who God was. He had physical weaknesses that made him lash out, right? But in the way we approached him, we heard him, and we were kind to him. And because we approached it gently, I believe one of the, the fruits of that was that that guy heard the gospel. He actually listened when we started talking and in turn gave his life to Jesus. And so this is how we approach. This is how we walk out. A wise person is gentle, even though they're being wronged and it's obvious they're being wronged. They, they take the kindest perspective possible. Compliance is what's next. Uh, last night we met, our discipleship group met, and this was one we, we talked about, like, what do you mean compliance? Like, that's not a good thing. But we're talking specifically with wisdom from above, right? So what are we being compliant to? Wisdom from above, not earthly wisdom. And so compliance is this, man. We hear correction, reproof, training, all of those things, and we take it in account, and we adjust, we step into what God's called us to. We're compliant with the commands of the Lord. Mercy is next. Um, I think it says merciful, bearing good fruits. This is like saying merciful with action. Put an action behind your mercy. Jesus told us in the Beatitudes, right? Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That's not to be confused with pity. It doesn't say, blessed are the pitiful. (laughs) Like, we're not showing pity on one another for, hey, sorry, that that thing happened to you. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is someone who puts action behind their compassion for another person. Two weeks ago, I was in California, and there was this, man, this 20-year-old kid who had just gotten the wrong end of life, it felt like. And again, he's just angry. And he wouldn't even sit by any other vet for dinner or lunch or breakfast. So I made it my mission to sit by this kid. And he would, like, put obstacles on the table so I couldn't put my plate down. Like, he really did not want me to sit by him, right? And I was just like, push it out of the way, sit down. Hey, bud, you know. And he's just like, leave me alone. <laughs> I just want some peace from you. One day, uh, I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday, one of the cadre, Victor Sassoon, looked at this kid, and Victor's an old, like, Delta guy, I believe, old Special Forces cat, and he looks at this kid, and he walks over to him, and he just hugs him, which is, like, crazy, right? Vega's back there. You were there. He just hugs him, and this kid melts, just melts, weeping. What a gift. When Victor put action behind mercy, man, that kid's heart started to just to, that's what God used to, to bring him into the knowledge of himself. Next is unwavering, which in the Greek means non-judgmental or impartial, right? Which we beat that horse dead in chapter two, that there's, uh, we should not, we should reject the sin of favoritism, right? We should not be, partial 
because God is impartial. So impartiality is a hallmark of wisdom from heaven because it reflects our God who is impartial. And last, without pretense or sincere. This means without hypocrisy. This says that I am the same man or woman that you see. And when I go home, my character does not change. What you see is what you get in the good way, the good sense, right? There's no hidden agenda behind the things I'm trying to do. This is someone who lets their yeses be yes and their noes be no. They are without pretense as Christ was sincere in his love, suffering and sacrifice for us. Wouldn't it be terrible if Jesus was not sincere? Like I'm sitting at the 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 table with sinners to get a free meal, you know, or, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to act like I'm going to the cross. Nah, I'm not going to do that. Gotcha. Prophecies are wrong. Like that's not what Jesus did, right? He was as real as it came every moment. And so this is the example we have to follow. We need to be sincere as well. So how do we get God's wisdom? This is the question. Kent Hughes says the Bible gives us five avenues for God's wisdom. And I just want to briefly touch on them. He says, number one, it's through reverence. Proverbs 10, 9 says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Do you really see God for who he is? Or for the sake of relevancy or connection with someone else, Do you minimize who he is for others or to make yourself feel smarter or bigger than you actually are? I see this so much in churches, unfortunately. They would rather downgrade the character of God to be a place for whatever. No, we we start wisdom starts with a fear of the Lord, with a healthy reverence. For the sheer awesomeness of God. A person who has reverence for, for, for God is someone who clings so closely to the sheer awesomeness of God that he knows that with one word, no matter my circumstance, God can calm that storm. With one word. He knows that God is awesome and loving and holy and sovereign or in control of everything. That a leaf doesn't fall off the tree outside without his say-so. And so the only response I should have to that God of power is to bow my knee. That's where wisdom begins. Lord, you are bigger and smarter than me. And I just want to know more about you. The second avenue is in our conversion avenue of gaining wisdom from God is in our conversion. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 30 and 31 says that it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He did it all. A wise person recognizes their reality. And their need. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And that is Christ. So my question for you is this. 
Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And if you're not, I'll be at that table outside after this service. I'd love to talk to you about it. And if you are, are you looking more like Jesus as time goes on? Are you looking more like Christ the longer you walk with him? That should tell us where we're gleaning wisdom from, right? Third, scripture. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. None of us will ascend to the heights of wisdom without spending our lives in his word and marinating on it. Just letting it become infused in every aspect of who we are. So do you spend more time scrolling Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat than you do in God's word? What what fools would we be if we did not recognize this hole in our walk and not correct it? Fourth is prayer. James 1.5 says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Do you ask God for wisdom concerning raising your children? Or what does it look like to be a good husband or a good wife? Or how do I conduct myself in the workplace? Or how do I untangle my emotions, God? I'm in this moment of crisis. What do I do? Lord, I need wisdom. Or how do I act with this really difficult person? How do I treat my mother-in-law? Might be some of you men out there. I need help. God calls us to seek his face and promises us that he will answer. The psalmist says that he, in fact, inclines his ear or turns his ear to hear you. That's how God loves you. And so when we ask him for wisdom, he, number one, he is listening to you. And number two is he's promising that he will give it to you. Seek him in prayer and in his word. And lastly, humility. Wisdom always coincides with humility. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. A wise person listens first, is patient, is gentle. Humility allows us to say, God, you are much smarter than me. (laughs) And I'm totally dependent on you for everything. And I need your wisdom. I don't have a clue. Did anyone give you an instruction manual when you had a child? I didn't get one of those. But God's word has much to say about how to raise my my four kids. Pray for me. My four kids. And so when I seek his face for wisdom, it's man, it comes from a place of humility because I don't have a clue. Man, this last week, Brittany will tell you. Them boys, oh my gosh. We were scratching our heads. 
what do we do? How do we help them grow? I don't have a, I don't have an idea. <laughs> you have any ideas? I don't got a clue. Oh my gosh, where's that chicken noodle soup for the soul book? <laughs> no, no. What we did was a couple things. We said, God help us. Let's read some Proverbs. And then we had sought wise counsel. We called my parents. Hey, you dealt with us. What'd you do? Right? That comes from a place of humility. So, will you choose true wisdom? Or for many of you, maybe continue walking in this false wisdom. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I don't think it can be said better. There would be no sense in saying that you trusted Jesus if you would not take his advice. So choose true wisdom. Let's pray.